The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data, Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Okay. Today is a special day for the MarTech podcast. Instead of focusing on a single channel of marketing, we're going to do a deep dive into the career of a marketer with a tremendous amount of experience. Joining us for Career Day is one of, if not the biggest influencers in the MarTech space. Scott Brinker is the VP of Platform Ecosystems at HubSpot. He's also the founding program chair of the MarTech Conference, and he is the editor of the Chief MarTech Blog. Prior to his current roles and responsibilities, Scott previously served as the CEO, CTO, and president of various businesses ranging from professional services to SaaS. Scott is truly the chief of the MarTech community, and we're very excited to have him on the MarTech podcast today. Here is our interview with the chief himself, Chief MarTech, Scott Brinker from HubSpot. Scott, welcome to the MarTech podcast. Thank you. That was a very kind introduction. <laughs> well, it's an honor to have you here. I was doing my homework in the MarTech space, trying to figure out who are some of the biggest influencers using a tool called Group High this week. And the top of the list when I typed in the search term MarTech was Scott Brinker, the chief MarTech. So <laughs> you're our number one target for this blog, and we're thrilled to have you here. Awesome. Well, it's great to be here. Great. So I want to walk through your career. This is our career day section. So what we do is we talk about why you got into marketing, some of the stops you've had along the way, some of the experiences and how they shaped your career to try to help marketers that are either early, mid-career or people that are sort of in your stage think about how to drive their careers. So let's start off from the beginning. Why did you get into marketing? Yeah, my path here is a little bit zigzagged. I actually wouldn't have said that I started out trying to get into marketing. I was, as a teenager, I was one of the early game programmers for some of the first online games. And so I sort of fell into marketing initially because as a game author, I would then turn around and work to promote these games online. So over that sort of first formative years of what got me excited, this idea of being able to create experiences that engage people and then find ways to communicate and promote uh, those sorts of experiences to people, I guess that kind of got me hooked at an early age. 
So you started off, uh, you had a technical background. You were making a product in the gaming space and you were basically turning the market to promote your work. Tell me a little bit about the types of games you were producing. Give me the timeline, set the stage for us. Wow, man, this is going back to the <laughs> mid to late 80s. I was one of the first people writing multiplayer online games. Mm-hmm. This was back in the days when we had things like America Online and Prodigy and CompuServe and stuff like that. So I started out writing games for bulletin board systems at the time, which essentially think of as the precursor to the interactive web. These were sort of like Facebook-like experiences before there was a Facebook. And that was a fascinating little ecosystem that was very niche. Like, I don't know, back in the 80s, movies like War Games or something like that got the subculture interested in, oh, wow, you can connect with people online. And wouldn't that be really awesome? So everyone in the field kind of knew that, hey, this is really interesting, getting to connect with other people through your computer to, like, reach around the world. Wow, wouldn't that be cool if everyone could do that? Then, of course, (laughs) the Internet exploded, which uh, had the property that completely eliminated the bulletin board system market of dial-up bulletin boards as we knew it but replaced it with something much bigger, much larger of the web ecosystem we all live in today. So was this your full-time job? Was this a hobby? Tell me about why you were into game production and marketing. Well, I was a teenager, so playing games was fun, but creating games and getting other people to dial in and interact with them, that was even cooler. So yeah, it really started as a labor of love. And then I was working with a bulletin board system company to help promote that game. I eventually went to college studying computer science, but I actually dropped out of college, my first attempt at it, to join that bulletin board system company. I eventually became the CEO of that company. Right at the time that, yeah, the internet exploded and destroyed the balloon board market as we know it. So that was a good experience in disruptive innovation. (laughs) Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So you're in high school, you're producing these games, you go to college, you're working for a bulletin board system, you drop out of college, and the next thing you know, you're the CEO. Help me connect the dots of how you end up being the man in charge when you're in your late teens and early 20s. These days, teenagers and kids in their early 20s are starting multi-billion dollar companies. So I wouldn't even hold a candle in today's young entrepreneurial circles, but... I'm sure you do just fine. (laughs) So the way it started out is the fellow who had founded that balloon board system company, I knew him very early on. He was the guy who encouraged me to pursue writing these games. So as I started to develop not only the ability to create these programs that were selling uh, very well, but... I ended up (laughs) hiring other teenage friends I knew and I was teaching them how to program and, you know, we were creating like customer support teams and it was kind of (laughs) the little rascals somehow made the interactive game industry. So yeah, eventually I joined his company and started building out teams for that group. And next thing I knew I was CEO. The funny thing is you had executive experience while you were still in the nascent years of your career, right? You're basically in your late teens, early 20s, and you're the man in charge already, which is probably not an experience that most people have. How do you think having an early leadership experience shaped your future career? Well, I certainly made every mistake that it's possible to make in the book there. And I guess in the big scheme of things, you know, helpful to actually learn from that experience. But I think one of the things I always feel like I've been so privileged to do in my career 
is to pursue ideas without generally ever feeling constrained by the structure in which I found myself. Again, for certain people, you know, as they're moving up their careers, particularly in larger companies, even if you have a certain idea, being able to move the necessary pieces in place to execute that gets a lot more challenging. That's a whole different skill set that, you know, I admire people who do that. As more of an entrepreneurial person who always generally just found myself in those leadership roles, I just feel like one of the things I was very lucky to have was the ability to say, hmm, I've got an idea here of something I'd really like to pursue, and I could just go ahead and pursue it. I think that's an interesting comment. And early on in my career, probably the beginning of the middle of my career, let's say, not the nascent stages, but I started my first startup. And of course, I did everything wrong and I invested in the wrong things and the money just disappeared quickly and the startup wasn't very successful. But that has helped me tremendously learning a about business, what not to do, and helped me with the business that I'm running now and my consulting practice. I think that there's a lot of wisdom there of starting to be entrepreneurial earlier in your career so you can get the mistakes out of the way when there is low risk and trying small ventures. I truly believe that that's good advice. Let's move on a little bit farther. You, you said that you dropped out of college the first attempt and you eventually have gone back to school, looks like multiple times. <laughs> yeah, I had a chip on my shoulder about that, which I clearly beat into the ground. If it makes you feel better. I graduated from Boston University four-year school and I went right after high school, sort of the traditional path. But I always wanted to go to Cal because I grew up a Cal football and basketball fan. And I had applied to the school like three times. And the third time I finally got into the MBA program and it just wasn't the right time for me to actually accept. And so I've always had the educational chip on my shoulder. And for me, getting over that was just getting accepted, not actually going to the school. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a more economical to take that solution than the one I chose. But yes. So after your experience working in gaming, did you go right back to school or did you have other jobs? No. So I had become the CEO of that board system company. And then, yeah, unfortunately, it was really right at the time that the internet was taking off and it really did thoroughly disrupt the BBS world as we know it. Had some interesting experiences there with the later stage M&A activity around, you know, selling that business to a group that would try and pivot it. And then basically, yeah, because the web was so hot, I was actually fascinated by this entire movement that, again, this thing that had been very niche about dial-up online services, now every business was connecting this way. So these bulletin board systems were really very sophisticated in the software and the actions that they could do online. When the web first appeared, it wasn't very sophisticated at all. Most websites were just you might remember the term brochure where it was, you know, okay, here's a nice page. It's a nice image. You can't do anything. So when I left the bulletin board market to embrace the new web, I thought, hey, this is a really great opportunity for us to take our experience of how to make interactive services that were available in the BBS world. How do we start to bring that functionality to these websites? So in the mid-90s, launched a consulting service based around just that. And that's the CyberOps Inc. Yes. And you could tell I was still in my mid-20s because the name CyberOps sounded cool. <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily that you were in your mid-20s or that it was the mid-90s, and it sounds very much like something out of Terminator 2. <laughs> exactly. And the confluence of those two things was the perfect storm of bad naming. Now it would be Cyber.io or something, but <laughs> we're just going with the buzzword of the time. 
And then uh, that consultancy ended up actually merging with a digital agency called ION. And together we formed ION Interactive, which was a very late 90s interactive agency sounding name. And that then actually became the work I did for a good seven-year stretch there of essentially a boutique web development agency that we would work for clients such as Citrix and Siemens and really help them build out these fairly sophisticated web properties. So that was the seed for all this chief marketing technologists. MarTech industry stuff that I do today is because as this boutique agency, we get hired by the marketing team at these large companies to build out their web dreams. But since I was running the tech organization, I was the guy who actually had to then get volunteered to go down the hall and talk to that company's IT department because the marketing department, and the IT department just couldn't actually talk to each other. They just didn't even have the same language. They're like different incentive structures. And so it was fascinating for me doing this shuttle diplomacy between marketing teams and IT teams. And there were two things that just stuck in my head. One was these folks are coming from opposite ends of the spectrum. And the second was, my goodness, if you looked at what the company actually wanted to do, it was so clear these two teams were going to have to get married at the hip moving forward. So imagining how the profession of marketing and IT might start to intersect and collaborate. Uh, it was kind of in that early 2000s where I just became fascinated by that. That's interesting. I want to ask you a little bit about the mindset of marketers at that time. To me, there's been a landscape shift for marketers moving from being creative-driven, more artists, to being data-driven and very technology-centric. Tell me a little bit about what the marketing team's goals were, what their mindset was, and I'm specifically looking for how it has shifted over time to what a good marketer does now. I think one of the challenges for marketing today is... I feel like all these new requirements of things that a great marketing team needs to be able to handle, the analytics, the marketing technology infrastructure, how do you actually run the operational facets of marketing, all these skills and talents that are required, they aren't a replacement for all the skills and talents and responsibilities that marketers had before. We still have all the responsibilities for like, okay, understanding the market, understanding the customers, how do we communicate with them? How do we work on the research of understanding our product and service and how it gets packaged and priced? All that stuff actually is still essential to being successful in this. I think it's really hard to find any one individual who is just somehow the unicorn master of all these domains within marketing. So the real challenge has become, I think, for marketing departments and marketing leaders is just a lot more responsibility for creating multidisciplinary teams having a marketing technology person on your team who's able to collaborate very effectively with a chief creative officer, or basically, you know, the lead that versus someone else on the team who might be managing the responsibility from almost like a project management perspective of the demand funnel and how that integrates between marketing ops and sales ops. I mean, getting all these pieces working together I mean, 15 years ago, I did not see that level of multidisciplinary collaboration as what a marketing team needed to do to be successful. I totally hear you. 
Honestly, it's one of the stressors or challenges that I see most marketers struggle with, which is how do I become an expert in all of these different facets? Because I need to understand the technology piece. I need to understand the quantitative piece. I need to understand the qualitative piece. I need to manage larger staffs. It used to be marketing sat next to sales. And those were drinking buddies and and it was about creative and what do the ads look like and where are we buying media? Very little about it was actually gauging what the performance of the ad was. And I'm thinking Mad Men, billboard style advertising. (laughs) Yep. And now it is the marketer sits next to the CEO and the CTO and understands the business performance and is doing revenue optimization. And it's just a much more complex game. It is much more complex. But again, it's like the heroes of marketing from the last century were people who really did have a gift for capturing the spirit of what a brand, what a company was in a position to offer its customers and find really compelling ways to express that. Usually with all the constraints of mass media, no personalization and no testing and optimization, all that. But I think if there's one thing I would say, and I say this as a thorough fan of marketing technology and analytics, there are definitely times when I feel like the pendulum has swung too far where the emphasis on developing these new muscles with technology and operations, in some cases, has atrophied some of the talent around the big idea, the big creative thinking finding that sweet spot of how do you get a differentiated, compelling message out there in such a noisy, noisy world. It's funny. I do want to get back into talking about your career path, but that's one of the things that I've seen a million times working with early stage and growth stage companies is that in my consulting practice, I essentially break my services into two components. One is brand development, figuring out who your customers are, what you want to say to them, what are their needs, basically doing the foundational part of traditional marketing, right? Product placement, pricing, promotion, those type of things. And then the second component is the marketing strategy, which is where are people looking? What are the tools we need? How do we validate that a channel works? And most of the time when I tell people that, they say, I don't need the first one. We don't need to put in the legwork to figure out what the message is. Let's just go put some stuff out there and figure out what channels they are. And it's like, it's not necessarily chicken or the egg. You have to have that solid foundation first to be able to execute an effective marketing strategy. And I feel like a lot of companies just focus on what I would call more growth strategy than traditional marketing. And I think that that's definitely a trend that I see where people are like, growth, 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 growth. Mm -hmm. We don't want to focus on marketing. We just want to grow. And it's like, well, you need to market yourself to grow. (laughs) Well said. Sorry, going off on a personal diatribe. Let's get back into talking about your career. Tell me a little bit about your experience in running a professional services business. You were doing consulting. You worked at an agency. What are some of the skills that you developed in working on that type of business? It was an interesting experience, and it sort of leads up to why I decided to transition out of that, which is the parts of it that I really loved was this process of going to the client and really trying to understand what it was they needed to succeed. And I phrase that very carefully because it isn't always what they were asking for. I mean, almost always there'd be like some sort of said, okay, we need ABC, XYZ. And that's fine. And on the surface, let's put that on the table. 
But I found that if you can dig a little bit deeper and just really try and understand, okay, well, why? What is it that you're looking to get out of that? And to just take a moment to step back and see, okay, maybe we do ABC, XYZ, but maybe there's MNLOPQ that are actually things that they haven't thought of that are going to be really essential to make this work. And that taking the time to step back and strategize what needed to be built rather than just brushing in and saying, okay, well, you're going to pay me an hourly fee to build ABC. So here's ABC. Good luck with that. That was the part of it I love most. The part of it I found frustrating sometimes was not every client wanted to take the time to think about MNLOP. Uh, you know, I was like, listen, we just want ABC. We'll pay you for ABC, build ABC. And we do that. But it was interesting in the cases where we did that, man, there were so many of those where at the end of the day, we build exactly what they wanted and it didn't give them the results they want. Or six months later, they changed their mind and say, hmm, yeah, now we've got this here. Actually, we realize we don't want ABC. We want DEF. And it's interesting. If you're purely in that game to make an hourly wage, you love those clients, right? Because they're basically, yeah, here, build this, build that, build this other thing. But if you're in a business because you really want to make an impact, you really want to find some sort of way to like change the outcomes for these businesses, then I found like the cases where I was unable to have that higher level discussion, it just wasn't very fulfilling. Okay, so I understand the benefits and the detractors from running a professional services business. As somebody who works in one right now, I totally understand what you're saying. Eventually, you moved away from professional services. Tell me what was next for you. So we essentially reinvented ION from being an agency to being a SaaS company, which I know many agencies have thought about doing and many have tried and many have not succeeded. And to be honest, wow, if I knew then what I know now, I'm not sure we would have like just rushed into that because that was a much harder transformation to make than I think we anticipated. But the genesis of it was we had started to see these patterns across many of our clients where they were having the same recurring challenge and having a bit of a product-oriented background from early on, I got really excited about the opportunity to find a product solution that instead of helping a dozen clients, might be in a position to solve this problem for hundreds or thousands of businesses. So that's how we transitioned ION into a essentially a second generation of the company that was an interactive content SaaS platform. So you basically recognize that your customers and your professional service businesses were having very similar problems and worked to produce an interactive content product. Tell me what you mean by interactive content. So content marketing now has been on the rise for 10 years, but most of this content's uh, passive. It's things like, you know, everything from blog posts to podcasts, right? So the audience is there, they're getting something out of it, but they're not actively participating versus interactive content becomes things like, it can be as simple as a quiz, it can be more sophisticated like assessment tools, interactive calculators, solution finders, these things where you actually get the audience engaging in some sort of activity and use that as a mechanism for generating value either for that individual or possibly aggregating to an entire community. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. 
Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then, and instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. So who are your customers when you were working on the SaaS portion of this business and how are they different than who your professional services customers were? Was there a shift in the people you were reaching? We started with the audience we knew. So our boutique web development agency had mostly large enterprise B2B companies. So when we built our first generation of the interactive content platform, that tended to be the customers who we were selling it to. So it became some of the companies that adopted it were like, say, Dell or the payroll company like ADP. And then as it started to grow, we had some really interesting consumer-oriented companies that started to leverage that, like General Mills ended up adopting the platform for some very cool interactive campaigns, American Greetings. So it's sort of group, but it's a very enterprise-oriented SaaS solution. Was General Mills using the carb calorie counter widget or was it a different type of campaign? <laughs> That's exactly the sort of thing. They had this great box tops coupon thing. So they managed that whole through an interactive content system. My sister, who's a third grade teacher, still collects the top of cereal boxes. So we save all of them for her. Yeah, those are seriously popular. Yeah, they did it at my daughter's school, too. It's great marketing. It's a great way to build an extra impression by keeping the top of the box around to remind you that the product has value. Yes, indeed. Okay, so you worked at Ion. You pivoted away from a professional services to a SaaS business. You mentioned that that was a difficult transition. Tell me about why that was a struggle. So the nature of a professional service business is everything gets tailored to individual clients. It's very much about looking at an individual client and how can you best serve their particular needs. And even if you have some underlying process or you have some underlying infrastructure for this, the entire sales and service motion tends to just naturally become a little bit more bespoke for each client versus when you're really trying to productize things, it's looking for that 
common intersection that's valuable to a large number of customers, but it also means occasionally having an individual customer who has a very specific request that's not going to be shared by anyone else and having to say, no, we can't do that for you. It's a very different muscle. It's a different way of thinking about a sales motion and a customer service motion. That makes a ton of sense. It's a different skill set. And I'm guessing that there was probably some organizational challenges thinking about the mindset of building a product to serve a select number of people with a specific problem, as opposed to trying to find a way to solve one customer's problem, no matter what it was. Yes. And this is where I think we just got incredibly lucky that just the individuals who were at ION for this transformation were just very agile people and adapting through this. We did not have to make staff changes or things like that. As I've seen other agencies try and go through that transformation, that was much harder. And I'm grateful somehow we were able to uh, not have it be that painful. So you worked on the ION business for what looks like 19 years. That's an incredible amount of your career. And you pivoted from starting off in a professional services focused business, repositioning the company to be focused on SaaS. Being at a company for 19 years, you were obviously a co-founder, you were the CTO. How do you stay focused on the same role for that long of a period of time? Well, I do think there were two generations of that company. And so the professional service one was about eight years. And then this restarting down the SaaS road was a very different kind of experience. And yeah, that took 10 years. My co-founders, Anna and Justin Tallarico, amazing people. They were, actually, they still are, married to each other. We started the business in South Florida, but then I later moved up to New York and eventually up to Boston. So we had this married couple and we had co-founders that were spread in different states. So I'm getting to the point that there's basically no way we were getting institutional venture capital to fund this business. So we grew ION organically and growing that to be a eight-figure business that was profitable from the start because it had to be. That was a decade-long journey. And man, every single year that had new adventures, everything from how do you scale up the actual organization itself to, let's face it, when you're working in digital marketing technology, you've got a moving target. Like what is considered state-of-the-art last year is completely changed like two years later. So it was never dull (laughs) in that experience of building that up. So it's interesting that a large portion of your career was really focused on building a technology-driven, but a lifestyle brand, right? Not something that's venture capital-backed, something where it's you know dollar in, dollar out, and the founders of the company are running their business. And you've since transitioned into working for a gigantic in terms of not only impact, but rounds of funding and the scope of the company, venture capital-backed company. Tell me a little bit about the transition going from working at ION to being at HubSpot. Definitely two different environments, but I will push back on the lifestyle thing a bit because I think it's interesting. There are, on one end of the spectrum, companies that get launched in tech that are funded by venture capital, and we understand that model. And they're definitely on the other end of the spectrum. There are plenty of lifestyle businesses where the founders are like, okay, let's find a way to balance what we're doing in a way that doesn't have to be a $5 billion company, but we can enjoy what we're doing and we can bring value to our customers. 
I think there's a really interesting set of companies today that exist between those two poles. And these are companies that are driven to grow real businesses. They're not intended to be just the playground of the founders. They're intended to actually operate their business the same way you would any sort of venture-funded business, but they're doing it organically. And frankly, all this technology that's come in with infrastructure as a service from Amazon and Google and all this digital marketing technology that we can leverage to find and reach and engage audiences, it's actually enabled this whole generation of entrepreneurs to bring things to market as real businesses, but they're not venture funded. I'm going to reference the sponsor of this podcast, Knit, which is the podcast advertising platform. They are founded by two guys. It's a distributed team that live in two different parts of the country, and they're putting their own money, sweat, and tears into building this platform to make it easier for anyone to use podcast advertising. And this actually isn't an ad read or anything like that. I just bring it up as the best example of the type of business that you're talking about, where this is a business and a platform built to scale, but founded by two people. Like not actually a team of 400 people that are looking to scale and become a billion dollar business. I'm sure they'd love to be a billion dollar business. And I believe <laughs> that that's possible in the podcast, you know, the dynamic insertion place. But yeah, I hear you in terms of this new class of business that you can bootstrap a company, get it up and running and scale it now without major investment, which is a shift in terms of why and how people are creating their own businesses. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's one of the things that in that very expansive MarTech landscape graphic I assemble every year. It's one of the reasons that landscape is so large is because there are so many organic companies entering in that space too. So to answer your question though about what it's like shifting over to HubSpot, it's definitely a shift, although one of the things that makes HubSpot HubSpot is that they've worked really hard to retain this entrepreneurial culture where it's a very distributed leadership kind of company. It's not like a super hierarchical top-down. The CEO says, all right, everybody, we're going to do this this way. And it all shuffles down, you know, in hierarchical levels. It's actually something where people really at the lowest levels of the organization on up are empowered to find opportunities and run with them, which is an amazing energy. It's also, <laughs> I will confess on the other side, it's challenging to keep up <laughs> with all the things that are going on at the same time. But I've actually found the spirit of working at this company very similar to the cultural experience of running my own startup. So talk to me about what you're doing at HubSpot. You're the VP of Platform Ecosystems. What does that mean? So let me step back that in this process of building Ion as a SaaS company, I in parallel had started a blog on the intersection of marketing and technology, chiefmartech.com really championing this idea of these hybrid marketing technologists, people operating at the intersection of these two fields. And that started just pure labor of love, as many blogs are. And podcasts. Yes, well, you know, and it's the best way for these things to begin, I think. But about four or so years into that, it really took off and ended up with tens of thousands of readers. And we started things like that MarTech landscape where we were tracking the industry uh, eventually launched the MarTech conference in 2014. So part of what happened there was this realization of what the biggest challenges were in the field of marketing technology. 
and a lot of them are organizational. A lot of them are about cultural changes, management changes. But if there was one technology challenge that everyone seemed to have, it was, oh my goodness, there's this explosion of these hundreds, now thousands of different marketing technologies. How do you, as a non-PhD in system architecture, like how do you as a regular marketer pull these things together to create an effective marketing stack? And that is a challenge that I've been, frankly, obsessed with for the past five years because it's a really interesting market. I mean, you think about like normally when we see explosions of technologies, they all happen around a platform, right? Like your iPhone. There are billions of apps for your iPhone, but everyone started with the iPhone. And so all the apps are designed around them. They plug in nice and neat and you're good to go. In marketing, there weren't central platforms. These things sort of each grew up on their own. And then independently, everyone's trying to figure out how do we connect them together. So I'm a big believer that the largest marketing technology companies, companies like Salesforce, Adobe, Oracle, HubSpot here from the SMB side, have an opportunity to try and bring some platform structure to that market. So that if a marketer, say, buys HubSpot, and then there are other things they want to add into HubSpot, they can just like click a button and pick it and it installs and it just works and they don't have to hire someone in IT to you know, figure out how to connect this API to that API to just make that as seamless as possible. So being a champion of that vision of where I think this industry can go, when HubSpot approached me and invited me to help do that for them. It was kind of those, you had me at hello moment. <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, your role is working on the platform that allows marketers to plug and play various marketing services using HubSpot's infrastructure. Yes. And my particular role, there are basically two of us that are leading this transformation in HubSpot. I have a counterpart in the product organization. Nancy Riley, who's amazing. So she's and her team are the ones actually changing the way the product is architected to better support an ecosystem of third-party developers. And then my role is more on the business side of the programs we use to be able to bring these partners into our ecosystem, how we help them be successful, giving them marketing channels, how we help market this to our customers at large. I have a question about HubSpot, and I know this isn't specific to your career, but more just because I have a million tools and I'm sitting here thinking about the stack I've put together to manage the content for my podcast and to do business development for my consulting service and manage my clients, where I'm using Asana for project management and Pipedrive for a CRM and Airtable for content management. Is the infrastructure that HubSpot's putting together a single place where I can weave all of those tools together, or are they all HubSpot-owned and managed services? That is exactly the vision here, is as a platform to be that central source of the data and to a very real degree also a certain amount of the workflow around that. So HubSpot has its own applications for marketing. We have a sales application. We launched a customer service application. But the idea of being a platform 
is to be open to any other technology that you'd want to connect to this. So like we don't have a project management solution. So being able to integrate with Asana or if you're using QuickBooks for like accounting, it would be great to just be able to connect QuickBooks so that this data is shared and your CRM is synchronized with the information of billing you might be doing to your clients. Real-time dollars per lead. Yes, exactly. And so one of the things about being open though as a platform is to say, listen, so we have a customer service module and people buy that. But if someone says, hey, actually, I prefer to use Zendesk or some other customer service solution, the idea of being an open platform is to say, hey, listen, that's great. We'll plug in Zendesk. You know, we're able to share data back and forth seamlessly with them, too, that we're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to have your stack of tools, not just your marketing stack, but really your small business stack, just work together better without you having to be an IT wizard to make that happen. Yeah, it's honestly one of the most dizzying challenges that I face running my business is trying to remember which tool I put what data into <laughs> and then getting the data out to analyze your business performance. And now you're consolidating multiple different data sources. And the next thing you know, you're in spreadsheet hell and you're just like, okay, lick my finger, put it in the air and decide which way the wind is going and let's go work on that project instead. Yep, it is a hard problem, but it's one that, again, I feel like this is something that the software world can solve. We can make this better. And over the next several years, I think it will get a lot better with HubSpot, but also with other products. I mean, almost every one major company I know in this space is investing very heavily in creating a better platform ecosystem and a better platform experience for their customers to solve that exact problem. So I want to ask you, we've talked a little bit about moving from professional services and founding your own company to working for a large enterprise. But along the way, you were also developing not only your own personal brand assets, but also working on the MarTech conference and really positioning the space that you work in as an industry. I'm interested to hear about the MarTech conference, the genesis of that, how you got involved, and what was the rationale for that? So it's funny, you started out this podcast calling me one of the influencers of the MarTech space. You're the chief. It's funny to me because I feel like a very accidental influencer. I definitely did not start down this path with like, okay, here's my vision. I'm going to have the personal brand of being the guy behind marketing technology. This really all grew out of just my own kind of obsession and fascination by these two career paths that when I was in high school, right, like if you went to the guidance counselor for like, what career would you like to pursue? You know, there was the IT technology stuff on one end of the spectrum, but like marketing and sales on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And it's like the mind kind of, you know, reels it. Well, wait a second, you would meld these two things together. So it's like, that change that the digitization of the world had brought about just really fascinated me. And the fact that that ended up connecting with other people who started to feel that affinity for the intersection of these disciplines, and I think in many ways just accidentally became a focal point for a new community that was emerging. So the MarTech conference got started in 2014 because the folks at Third Door Media, who are the producers of that event, uh, had seen this community start to emerge around my blog. And we decided to work together on launching that where they brought their incredible just experience with 
putting on really good events. They took all the leadership on the logistics, the operations, the sponsorship side. And my role with that has been to purely focus on, okay, the actual content and the ways in which we engage the audience around that. And man, I just feel so incredibly grateful for that collaboration because Again, I kind of feel like all I've done is indulge my interest in topics and people around this field. And for them to have structured a conference that allows us to do that at some scale, it's just been thrilling. So I'd love to hear with our last few minutes, we've talked basically from the beginning of your career, the high school days, starting your own company, professional services, running a SaaS business, working for an enterprise running a blog, starting a conference, basically branding an industry. When you look back on the entire experience and where you sit today and where the MarTech industry sits today, what are some of the things that get you excited? What are the ways that you would suggest other people get involved in the industry? I think I'm more excited now about this industry than I ever have been because the community that's been in MarTech to date, in my mind, has been sort of the classic early adopters, the people professionally that wanted to push the envelope and jump into this. The companies who embrace this tended to be a little bit more early adopter in their mentality. And that's great. I mean, there's an experience of, you know, how early adopters come together and bring something to life that's been a thrill to work on. But to now see so many mainstream businesses starting to make this shift where like, okay, marketing operations isn't just some sort of random little thing in the corner. This now becomes one of the fundamental pillars of how we run an effective business, how we run an effective marketing organization. And people starting to think about, okay, how do we professionalize marketing technologists? How do we help more people to come into these career paths at scale I think we're going to see like an order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude of the expansion of this marketing technology and ops profession over the next five years or so. And that it's to me just incredible. This might actually be a really major transformation in marketing yet ahead. Boy, I hope so. As the creator of the MarTech podcast, I obviously am invested in the space and intrigued by what's happening in this as a developing industry. And also as someone who's relatively new and just sort of positioning their career to be focused on MarTech, having you here as somebody who not only helped develop the industry, but also work to brand it and sort of bring it to light. I just want to say thank you. The work that you've done is foundational to the career that I'm building. And I'm excited to be able to talk to other MarTech enthusiasts and people that are building their career about what they're doing. But you were basically in the space from the early days. So I personally appreciate all the work you've done to raise the profile of the MarTech industry and show companies how valuable it is. Well, thank you. And I'm thrilled you're doing this. There is so much need for education in this space. I just was reading a survey from the folks at eConsultancy where something like 66% of the marketing leaders they talked to basically felt they did not have the skills or talent in their organization to use marketing technology effectively. So to me, like that's the challenge. That's the huge gap of this moves to really being beyond the early adopters into the mainstream through podcasts and conferences and blog posts and getting people together any way we can. Yeah. How do we help this industry grow and learn together? So I wish you the absolute best of success. 
Well, I appreciate it. And hopefully the other people that are listening to this podcast get as much out of the conversation and as out of your work as I have. So I think that's a great place for us to wrap up this episode of the MarTech podcast. Thanks to the chief MarTech himself, Scott Brinker from HubSpot for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Scott, you can click on the link in our show notes or visit chiefmartech.com, which is C-H-I-E-F-M-A-R-T-E-C. No H. TEC.com. If you didn't have time to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, don't worry. We have a summary and a full transcript of the episode on our website, which you can find through the link in our show notes or by going to our website, martechpod.com, M-A-R-T-E-C-H-P-O-D.com. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thank you for being a member of our community. If you have MarTech questions, comments about the show, if you're interested in being a guest on the MarTech Podcast, click the link in our show notes, or you can also reach out to us via LinkedIn or Twitter by searching for my handle, which is Ben J. Shap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got a bunch of great episodes lined up for the next few weeks. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed next week. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.